Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest will be Dr. Jennifer Talley, who uh, teaches addiction treatment uh, counseling and harm reduction strategies at the New School University to people who are going to become addictions counselors. And our second guest tonight will be, uh, he wishes to remain anonymous because he's going to be talking about underground needle exchange in Texas where it is illegal. And before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. And for more information, go to hamsnetwork.org book. Our first guest is Dr. Jennifer Talley, and we're going to bring her on right now. Jennifer, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you for coming on board. Um, if the audience doesn't know out there, I was also at the uh, New School several years ago um, studying. I was studying addiction counseling and uh, working on my degree in psychology, but that was under a different professor that was before uh, Jennifer had come to join the staff. And uh, my former professor, before my former professor decided to leave, so this is actually the first time we've talked to each other. Although I am familiar with the new school, and I should also mention, I know uh, Jennifer works with our colleague, Dr. Andrew Tatarski. We've had him on the show before. He's the author of uh, the Harm Reduction Psychotherapy book, which we recommend very highly. And uh, well, I'm going to stop blabbing away right now and tell us a little bit about what it's like to teach uh, teach uh, future future counselors and how do they react to the idea of harm reduction? Do some of them come out of traditional programs? I would say that it's been very exciting to be able to work with students and to have this opportunity to engage future clinicians. Most of the students I'm working with right now, especially the ones that I have in my class this year, are new to the field. Um, last year, I had some students who had experience of their own being in 12-step programs, um, but for the most part, these are new clinicians. So I get to engage with them and teach them strategies and I think to work in a more open, accepting way. And then what happens is when they go out to externships and they're on field placements, they really see the divide in the field, which is the difficult part on my end to help, you know, kind of bridge that gap between what we're teaching in the classroom and what's actually going on in the field. Um, Do uh, they still all go uh, to, or most of them go to Beth Israel Detox, I think it was where, or do they go to many different places? At this point, we have them at about eight different sites, Mm -hmm. um, a variety of sites. I have them at the Realization Center, 
Um, I have a few students that are working at the LGBT Community Center. Um, one of my students is at the Bowery Residence um, Committee. And um, so we're just trying to build new connections. I have some students going to Green Hope um, Services for Women, and then I have a student who is at um, New York Harm Reduction Educators, which is a needle exchange program. So I've been oh. trying to just broaden their opportunities. That sounds really good. That's a really uh, wide field of choices that they have, and I'm mm -hmm. happy to hear that. That seems, you know, almost everybody went to the to just uh, intern, do the externship at uh, at the detox when I was uh, taking class there. So it seems very nice that you expanded the possibilities. Um, and do the does, do the students get to choose themselves their externship, or do they get assigned? We collaborate, so I, I actually ask them what their interests are. Um, you know, so some of my students really want to work with women, and specifically women who have a history of trauma. So I try to find, you know, placements for them where they can do that, or even within the sites themselves that they can tailor their experience. Um, and then there are the logistics of what's available, how many spots are open for each student, and then if they can commit, you know, to a six-month placement, which is what we're aiming for at this point. And how do you how do your students react when you first tell them about harm reduction? Are they familiar with it? Do they say, "Oh, you're enabling drug users"? Do you get lots of different reactions? I get a lot of mixed responses. I would say that initially, when I start presenting these ideas, there is some anxiety around that very issue of, "Am I enabling? Um, am I contributing to more harm?" Actually, if I don't tell them to stop using. Um, so there are a lot of concerns about the ethics behind what we're doing. But I think once they can kind of step back and really look at the big picture of what we're doing and what it means to engage clients in this way, then they're much more open to it. Yeah, what we ha what we see a lot in uh, the real world is, you know, when you start telling people, you ought to do this, you ought to do that, you know, you set up mm -hmm. a reaction in them uh, to say, no, I'm not. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and exactly. So that's where a motivational interviewing comes in, is to address that issue of not telling people what to do, but helping them to, uh, helping to motivate them to make the changes they want to make for themselves. Can you tell us a little bit about motivational interviewing? Do you teach that? Yes, that's actually coincidentally what we were talking about today in my class. Um, so because I have these students for a year, um, I introduce it in the class that I teach in the fall, which is the introductory introduction class. And then in the spring semester, we actually get to do more of the applied you know, strategies. Um, so motivational interviewing is really a client-centered approach. Um, and it, it addresses where the client is at, helps them assess what the pros and cons are of whatever it is that they're engaging in that they may choose to um, reduce their use, they may choose to just explore what their options are, um, and it is sensitive to the stages of change, so assessing where the client is in terms of their desire to change, how important it is to change, how ready they are, and then how confident they are to make the changes. Um, so I have the, the students kind of think about, you know, what's it going to be like to sit with somebody and to work on really asking open-ended, more reflective Questions, which I think is hard for a student, you know, who's first starting out, who may be in this mode of, you know, asking a lot of kind of closed questions. Um, so today, what we talked about was this idea of just 
stepping back, asking open-ended questions, not asking so many questions in a row, you know, using more reflective, you know, summary statements to make sure that you're capturing where the client is at. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, what do you use for textbooks for your classes? Um, right now, we are using um, the, the latest version of the Denning book that just recently came out that she published mm-hmm. with um, Jeannie Little. Um, I'm using um, Dr. Tcharsky's book on harm reduction psychotherapy. And then um, Arnold Washington and Jones Webbins' book on treating alcohol and drug problems in psychotherapy. And then the other book I I have been using this second half of the the term with the students is um, Marlatt's Mindfulness-Based Relapse Prevention Workbook that came out. Um, So a component of my class is actually on mindfulness and teaching the students the skills and then teaching them how to engage clients by using mindfulness as a technique. Oh, that's an interesting book. Uh, we just interviewed Sarah Bowen, who is a co-author of that book, just a few weeks mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. So I'm very interested in that book myself. I only got a chance to read parts of it before we did the interview, but I'd like to uh, write a little bit more about that from a self-help perspective because, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm interested in giving people all the tools that they Mm-hmm. that they can possibly use to help them on a self-help basis. Mm-hmm. Great. Now, you work with uh, Andrew Tatarski at the, I think it's the Center for Optimal Living. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Sure, I'd love to. We, um, The center opened this past September, um, so it's, you know, I think we're still um, getting ourselves organized and up and running, but it's been really exciting to get to work with Dr. Tatarski, and to be able to collaborate with other clinicians who are like-minded in that we, we use an integrative harm reduction model at this clinic. Um, and it's an outpatient clinic, um, and we offer group treatments, we offer individual therapy, and then we also are hoping to start a family group for um, the significant others, the people who might be in treatment with us, to have an outlet and a support system within our own center. Um, I just started running an emotion management skills group at the center, um, and we focus a lot on mindfulness skills, um, and then also just tracking urges to use, looking at different um, just techniques that they could use in the moment if their goal is to moderate or reduce some of their use. Okay, and you mentioned uh, that you use Pat Denning's new book, um, the mm-hmm. second edition of. Uh, Practicing Harm Reduction Psychotherapy. Um, mm-hmm. What did you What did you think of that book? I I think it's a great book, especially to use in class, um, because mm-hmm. it does provide a really broad overview of different areas. So I find it really user friendly. The students seem to really find it useful, and I've tailored assignments for the class based on, you know, her. Um, the psychodynamic matrix and, you know, some of the the tools that she has in the book, um, I've actually incorporated that into my assignments for the students. Yeah, I found that was an – it is the best book on addiction treatment, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. that has Mm -hmm. ever been written. So I'm just totally, highly impressed with it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of the best books I've seen. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was very happy that she talked about – 
issues like trauma and issues like, you know, the early childhood trauma can affect, you know, genes. Genes are turned on and off. It's not like you're just born with this genetic makeup that determines you. You know, the, the old-fashioned disease model, where, you know, you were born an alcoholic and that was it. Mm-hmm. And it got way right. beyond that. Mm-hmm. Right. The other part that I really like about it is that she uses case examples, and that is what my students love to hear about um, and hearing about you know, my own reactions to my clients, you know, talking about the countertransference aspects of this work, I think that's really useful. Oh, that's a good topic. Tell us a little bit more about countertransference and what do you tell students about that? And first, what is it? For some of our mm-hmm. audience might not be familiar with that term. Mm-hmm. Countertransference, the way I understand it, my training was, was more cognitive behavioral, so I've come to embrace this term and so, you know, learn more about this term since I've been up here in New York and been exposed to the more psychodynamic models. Um, But it's really kind of examining the feelings that get elicited in response to the process of being in therapy with the clients that you're working with. Um, So what happens for you in the moment when you're, you know, responding to the client? You know, what feelings get activated? What thoughts might get activated? And, you know, just being able to sit with it for yourself and then also examine is this a product of what's happening in the moment with the client, or is this something about me and my own history that's getting stirred up, you know, as a function of being in treatment with this client? I don't know if that's in line with how you conceptualize it. Yes, I think so. I think I think so. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, mm-hmm. society uh, for, shapes many of our ideas about you know, what drug users are like, you know, television, the media, they have so many stereotypes that they're promoting and, you know, they're basically all wrong. (laughs) You know, most people are not like the the characters on TV who are just, uh, you know, the drug users on TV are extremely exaggerated for dramatic purposes. And in Mm -hmm. real life, people are people. Mm Mm-hmm, right. Right. We talk a lot about that in class, that you're sitting with another human in the room what, you know, and having the students imagine what's it going to be like to sit with these clients and to hear what they're going to tell you. you know, and They might still be actively using and to have the students kind of stop and pause and reflect on what comes up for them you know, as they're hearing these different things. And that's really important for, to, to humanize it for them. And how do you deal with the question of... Uh, should should clients stop every substance? Should they stop alcohol and all drugs? And or you know, do they do they make their own choices and say, well, you know, crack gets me in a lot of problems, but you know, I still like to drink drinks now and then. Or how do you deal with that whole aspect? Mhm. I think I frustrate my students a lot because I say I don't know. You know, it really depends on the person, and it depends on the person's history, and you know we may get to a point where we decide to experiment with reducing their use um, and seeing if that fits in with what they're able to do in this moment. Um, I think it's certainly possible for people to abstain from one substance if that's what they choose to do, but, you know, to continue using another substance if they're able to use it in a way that's appropriate for them is not causing them, you know, negative consequences. Yeah, and I find that's very true too. You know, people want to change, change different things, and they're not all in the same stage of change for each substance. You know, yes. they're, 
they're in different stages of change for each substance. Normally, that's normally the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and, I, and that's something I try to get the students to think about is that you have to understand the client's relationship with each substance or each behavior that they're identifying as a problem behavior, that we can't assume that they want to stop everything or that they want to cut back on everything or that everything means the same thing to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of people get you know they get they get surprised when I tell them my personal history that uh, the one thing there are two things I had to abstain from completely in my life, and one is cigarettes and the other is television, and mm. television was the worst addiction I ever had in my life, and I can't have one in the house or I just turn it on and it eats up all my time and I actually hate everything that I'm watching. So I just had to completely abstain from that, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, but but as far as alcohol goes, I find it's much easier to control alcohol. I can drink two days of the week when I, when it's not a work night, and you know, abstain the other five, and it's really easy to control alcohol. It's impossible for me to control television, and you know, people mm-hmm. just aren't uh, being told. Well, television is this horrible addiction that you have to stay away from. Television addiction hardly ever gets mentioned. Mm-hmm. in our society. But for me, it was just, you know, it it was one of the things I couldn't deal with. Mm-hmm. You know, cigarettes. Yeah. Was, it's something mm-hmm. I hear about. It's something I hear about clinically, but you're right. I don't hear about this getting discussed, you know, more openly. Well, the thing is, television programs are not going to tell you how terrible television is. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's such a, such a source of our information. And uh, well, the other one was cigarettes. I do like a cigar now and then. Now that I quit, I'm you know, very limited on um, when I use uh, nicotine, but I use it recreationally and no more than once a week. But cigarettes, the delivery mechanism is too bad, is too too negative for me, too pro- problematic. So I just you know, mm-hmm. that's another one I have mm-hmm. to abstain from. Um, mm-hmm. I noticed in your your email that you sent me about this show. Um, you talked about co-occurring disorders and uh, working with PTSD and particularly with women. And tell me about co-occurring disorders. First, to tell our audience, what are co-occurring disorders? What does this mean? Co-occurring disorders are when clients have more than one diagnosis. So they may have a co-occurring mood disorder, an anxiety disorder. could also be a personality disorder. Um, that comes along with their substance use issue or behavioral addiction issue. And the traditional treatment says, um, the traditional approach says you have to get people to completely stop using substances before you can treat any, uh, you know, co-occurring mental disorder. And uh, Mm -hmm. so what's your opinion on that? I think in practice that it's very difficult. It, It puts a lot of pressure on the client, um, and I think that it can also lead to, you know, a rejecting kind of shaming response that the client then has to sit with and manage on their own. If they're rejected from a facility because they're still actively using or vice versa, maybe they have a bipolar diagnosis or, you know, for instance, an access to diagnosis of borderline personality, some substance use facilities may not accept them in for treatment because they're not stable in terms of their mental health. Yeah, I think that's the most common thing that happened in the past was the people with co-occurring disorders got no treatment at all because they got rejected by both sides. Right, 
Right, absolutely. And I think that is a, it's still a major issue that's happening now in the system. Um, the, the good thing is that, you know, working with Dr. Tatarski and the way that I, I work with my students, I think it's important to acknowledge both and to be able to approach both, at the, you know, at the same time, ideally, with clients and helping them understand the connection and relationship between maybe a mood disorder and then how that might contribute to alcohol misuse or whatever it is that they're coming into treatment to address. Yeah, I know when I was uh, seeking help myself many years ago, I would be, you know, I would be saying, you know, I'm really depressed. And because I'm depressed, you know, I'm drinking too much Mm -hmm. and I need to work on depression. And I would get told, you know, get out of here and go to AA and stop drinking for six months and come back. It's like, Mm -hmm. I can't, AA is very offensive to my religious beliefs. And, you know, just get this, well, we're not Mm -hmm. going to help you. Right. And they're just, well, not helping is not helpful. Mm-hmm. They're helping you understand the role that the alcohol plays, and you might actually feel more depressed once you stop using, you know, not something to kind of prepare for in treatment. You know, what happens to you kind of from a biopsychosocial perspective when you reduce your use, you know, what happens to your body? How do you respond to it? You know, that coping tool is gone now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, particularly in my case, I didn't want to stop. I wanted to reduce, but I wanted to, you know, I wanted to have less need to drink because it was the depression that was driving the drinking because I wanted to blot out this feeling of feeling so miserable all the time. So I was using alcohol. Mm-hmm. I knew all this stuff. And, you know, I would tell this mm-hmm. and I would just get told, no, we don't work with people who are active substance users. Mm-hmm. And so I think yeah, that all, mm-hmm. go ahead. Yeah, or people get, you know, discharged from treatment if they have a relapse or they continue to use. You know, that's something that I I encounter just from my students, having them report that the facilities have a very clear, you know, policy. If a person's still using or if they test positive, then they're discharged, you know. Yeah, that's like taking away your insulin for having high blood sugar if you have diabetes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You don't take away the treatment that's because you have symptoms of the disease. Mm-hmm, right. Well, the whole harm reduction psychotherapy thing seems to be, uh, you know, to ter- turn this around and say, you know, people, co-occurring disorders seem to be the rule and not the exception, and you can work on both at the same time, and it's most mm-hmm. productive to work on both at the same time. Mm-hmm, I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me about... Uh, that you work with women with uh, complex PTSD, and uh, tell me about that aspect of your work. Mm -hmm. Sure. I first started working with this population when I was on internship at Princeton House. Um, I worked in an intensive um, outpatient setting, and, you know, I found that I really was interested in this population. I felt like I, I could engage them in treatment um, and now I actually work at the Women's Health Project at St. Luke's, in addition to all the other things that I'm doing. Um, and I work with women who have complex PTSD, which means that they've had um, abuse throughout their lifespan. So, you know, perhaps they've been exposed to domestic violence. They've been, you know, victims of sexual abuse, physical abuse um, throughout multiple developmental periods. Um, and many of the clients I work with 
um, also have relied on substances or other, you know, risky behaviors to help them manage, you know, the, the acute symptoms of, of trauma. How does, uh, how does uh, harm reduction psychotherapy, how does it help you address these people's issues? What I do is I really help them understand the role that the substance use plays in helping manage the symptoms um, and the function that their use plays. Because um, I think it's important to acknowledge that they're deriving some benefit from what they're doing um, and to educate them about what PTSD is, what complex trauma is, and to just give it a name for them to understand that, you know, I have nightmares every night. You know, it, it's connected to what happened to me at an earlier point in my life. You know, or I don't sleep through the night. Um, I have distressing images. I have dissociative symptoms. You know, and perhaps, you know, their their alcohol use or their opiate use or their cocaine use has been a really effective way to kind of turn the volume down on some of these symptoms. And I do, I tend to think of PTSD as a very physiological disorder, you know, that's the way I tend to address it clinically is that I help them start to just identify what's happening in the body. Can we give a name to what some of these physiological symptoms are? And then how can we teach different tools to help you manage the anxiety, you know, this this biological fear response that gets triggered pretty readily. But, you know, I think if I asked them to stop using up front and, you know, pushed abstinence on them, I think that would be way too much for them. They don't they don't have the resources to cope with the severity of their symptoms. I think you have to acknowledge that piece of it and provide support and tools for them, you know, to address both at the same time. Yeah, it doesn't work to take away uh the coping mechanism until a new coping mechanism is in place. Mhm. Right. Exactly. Uh are there any uh stories from the classroom, any debates or discussions that students have that, that stand out in your mind that you think you'd like to share with our audience? Um, we do get into some ethical discussions about, you know, what to do with clients who are actively using. And I still think that's something that as a class we're working on, um, that some students still really have a hard time wrapping their brain around working with somebody who's actively using that. They have this anxiety about, well, what will happen, you know, if a person is drinking at such a high level or if they're, you know, using cocaine or opiates, is it, isn't it my responsibility to help them stop, you know? And some students, I think, are, are more on board with this idea of harm reduction so they can kind of counter it by saying, you know, the, the client's not ready, you know, to, to give this up yet. You know, we have to engage the client, you know, offer them different tools. Um, but that does definitely come up. You know, isn't it my obligation to fix them or to tell them that they have to stop using? Um, do they have any, I mean, do they have different reactions to different uh, substances? Like, for instance, you know, Many drugs are illegal, but alcohol is a legal drug. Uh, caffeine and nicotine are legal drugs. I mean, they're all drugs. Mm -hmm. They all alter your consciousness. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, do they find, you know, do they react differently to different drugs, your your students, when they're talking about the need to abstain? They do. You know, what I've noticed is that their response to heroin in particular and knowing that somebody is using a needle, for example, and injecting themselves, 
that tends to stir up more emotion for them. Um, we had William Matthews from the Harm Reduction Coalition come in, and we were so lucky to have him come in, and he did an overdose prevention training for the students. Um, so it was great to have him come in and engage them, and we got overdose prevention kits from him. Um, so I think that helped because it helped destigmatize, you know, this idea of working with people who are injecting themselves and who use needles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can understand that. Um, I see our second guest is here. We're going to bring him on in about two or three more mm-hmm. minutes. I'm just letting okay. him know that I do see him here, and we're going to bring him on in a couple more minutes, and we're going to wrap this up. I wanted to mm-hmm. say, I mean, I understand the students' reaction to injection. Drug users, you know, my drug of choice was always alcohol, uh, alcohol, mm-hmm. nicotine, and caffeine, uh, the legal drugs. I haven't smoked marijuana in a long time because I have bad reactions to it. And I didn't really have uh, experience with the other drugs, but when I wanted to study harm reduction and see how you could apply harm reduction to alcohol, well, what was my option for, you know, it's been, what, like eight years now since I wanted to study harm reduction. And my option to study harm reduction was to go volunteer at a harm reduction organization. So I was volunteering Mm -hmm. at the uh, needle exchange in Minneapolis. And, you know, the first time I went to knock on the door, I was just totally scared to death. And uh, But my experience of working there on and off for a year or so, you know, I totally lost my fear of injection drug users. You know, I realized how many, how many people that came in to use the exchange, you know, they, you wouldn't look twice at them on the street. They just looked absolutely like normal people, and, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's, it was a complete change in attitude. I really recommend anyone that's going to work in this field to uh, do some volunteer work in needle exchange. And it really helps to uh, reshape your attitudes and change your mind about things. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Now I'm going to ask you just to whatever, what concluding words would you like before we bring on our next guest? Um, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to come in and to speak about this. You know, I think that there's still a lot of work to do in spreading the message about harm reduction. You know, to me, it's very intuitive to work in this way, but my experience is that the community has to still catch up. You know, the addiction community really still has to catch up to what we're doing here in the classroom. Okay, sounds good. Thank you very much for being our guest this okay. evening, Jennifer Talley. And Thank you very much. Okay, we're going to bring our next guest on right now. Hello, can you hear me? Uh, Yes, I can. Okay, this is our next guest. As I said, um, this guest is going to be anonymous. He's going to be talking about the underground needle exchange that operates in Texas where uh, the needle exchange is still illegal. And so I'm just going to call you anonymous guest for this evening, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, tell us a little bit about about what it's like to uh, work in needle exchange where it's illegal. Well, um, we uh, um, we have to be more careful probably than in many places where it's legal. Um, for example, if uh, 
if a police officer uh, comes around while we're out doing the exchange and they uh, don't leave or they, they come once and then we see them drive by again, then we leave. We don't stick around um, because we could get arrested for um, possession of uh, drug paraphernalia. Um, we also have some issues regarding raising funds to help, to help uh, pay for the services. Um, we don't get any government support, and a lot of private foundations will run the other way once they learn what we do. Okay. Uh, what are there things that you tell clients about, uh, you know, having needles and uh, how not to get in trouble for having clean needles? I think uh, they're pretty aware of it because I know in a lot of places where it's legal, um, if they have a, their card or if they have syringes that are marked as uh, being syringes from a syringe exchange that um, that kind of forgives the, that exempts them from the drug paraphernalia drug paraphernalia laws. But in uh, in Texas, we don't have that kind of protection. So um, I know that we have some people who some of our clients who um, won't um, carry dirty needles with them. So you know they come into the into the exchange and uh, they don't have needles to give us because they got rid of their needles because they don't want to carry them with them. Uh, there aren't a lot of them that do that, but there are some who are aware of the legal status and so they are very nervous about carrying dirty needles to the exchange. So uh, what kind of exchange do you operate? When I was doing this in uh, Minneapolis, uh, where it's legal, of course, anyone could get uh, 10 needles, you know, and if you if you brought in if you brought some in, then we would exchange for what you brought in. But if you didn't have any, we would give you ten needles to work with. It's it's the same. Um, we used to do two for one. So if someone brought in ten needles, we would give them twenty in exchange. Um, but because of um, budget situations, we aren't able to do that right now. So now we're doing one for one. But if if someone has less than ten, ten needles or zero, then we would uh, give them ten needles to start out with. And uh, why do you think uh, needle exchange is illegal in Texas? I think a lot of it has to do with the political climate here. Um, we do have – we've had a couple of bills um, before the legislature the last two sessions. In Texas, the legislature meets every other year. <clears throat> in the last two sessions, we've had bills introduced. Um, and uh, two sessions ago, which uh, would be in 2009, we had – a bill that was introduced in the Senate um, by a very conservative uh, Republican uh, a senator, um, and the bill actually passed the Senate, but it didn't get out of committee in the House. Um, and um, the the senator who is the sponsor for the bill, he's a doctor. He understands the science. Even though he's a very conservative Christian, his argument was, you know, this is something that Jesus would, would do if he was here. Um, but the last session, because the, there was so much resistance in the House, he decided to wait to see what the House did, and then the House did nothing again. Um, so I think a lot of it has to do with uh, with people being afraid that syringe exchange um, encourages drug use, which has not been borne out in, in the science. Um, and also, I think a lot of it has to do with prejudice against people who inject drugs. Yeah, that does seem to be the case. Um, 
people that inject drugs, even people that don't inject, people that use illegal drugs, are being very stigmatized and scapegoated in the, the media these days. This is just my opinion. When I see when I see shows or things, uh, it's like you know this is the new scapegoat that's replaced some of the old groups that used to be the victims of prejudice. I absolutely agree. So you know it's not real. Um PC to be prejudiced against African Americans or even gay people nowadays. So uh, nowadays it seems to be drug users and um, immigrants, um, undocumented immigrants, and um, it's unfortunate that uh, we still have to deal with these kind of prejudices these days. Yeah, even some of the people that consider themselves very PC and very liberal and very left-wing, you know, and then as soon as you mentioned drug users, it's, uh, oh, those terrible people, and, you know, the the ideology doesn't extend to this group. Yeah, and I, I think part of it could be due to uh, the fact that the, because this population is so persecuted actively by the government that they stay in the closet, basically, and so, you know, it's, a, it's uh, easier for people to deal with the prejudice whenever they know someone who is a part of a particular group, um, it's a lot easier to demonize them when they don't understand that these are human beings and not monsters. Yeah, as I said uh, just earlier when I was working in needle exchange to study harm reduction, uh, my whole outlook just changed completely because, you know, th these are just, they're people. It's pe just people yeah. like other people. Yeah, they're people with problems, just like all of us, and uh, and their problem just happens to um, kind of be what society tends to hate right now. So is there activism going on in Texas now, grassroots, uh, to uh, work on changing laws? Um, there is. Uh, the last two sessions we've had um, um, some funding uh Dedicated to helping to um, pass the pass the change the law here in Texas, um, and uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen this coming session because the last two sessions haven't been successful. Um, of course, the organization I'm involved with can't because we do needle exchange, and so we've got to stay under the cover. Um, and so it's difficult for us to do any kind of advocacy uh, simply because we don't want to stick our necks up uh, above ground because if we do, someone may chop it off. And it's more important for us to provide the services on the street. I know in the uh, public health community there's a lot of support because the science is very clear that syringe exchange saves people's lives. It doesn't increase drug usage. Um, and it's more important for people to... Um, go through their drug usage, and most people do. Most people end, end their usage at some point, um, and they can survive their usage. Most people survive just fine, but they can't survive. It's difficult for them to survive an HIV or a hep C infection because um, it's, those aren't curable right now. And so, um, But even in the public health community, especially if they're government workers, you know, there's, they're very limited to how much advocacy they could do um, on behalf of people who inject drugs. Well, are there uh, organizations or people out there that are working to uh, educate uh, drug users about safer drug use and uh, educate the public about this? Uh, our, our 
our organization does, and um, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, if uh, other organizations, both public and private, do, especially if they're working with injection drug users directly. Um, as far as I know, the organization I'm, I'm involved with is the only uh, exchange in Texas currently, um, and but at the same time, uh, it's it's a little bit hard to say because there's such a, a strong um, push in the recovery community for abstinence only. Um, I imagine that uh, there are probably a lot of people, a lot of organizations that understand that that's not always the only way to go, and so uh, they probably do harm reduction in their in their organizations. But um, uh, we're probably one of the few that will be a, in the open as much as we can about about pushing harm reduction versus abstinence only. Now you're talking about this a little before. Um, most drug users are, they, don't they eventually overcome their addiction? Yeah, they do, and uh, that's why it's important to keep them uh, free from. Uh, HIV and Hep C, especially since there's no cure for them, so they can recover from their addiction, but there's no recovery from HIV or Hep C. And that's something that people have to understand is that, you know, it's better for someone to go through their addiction and recover from that infection-free because if they become infected, then for the rest of their lives, they're going to have to deal with uh, with the infection. Yeah, and certainly for many people, you know, the, the more problems that they have, the more reasons they have to use drugs. And it's not – well, the classic idea is people talk about hitting bottom and as though, as though, as though traumatizing people was going to cure them, and I don't think that's the case at all. Yeah, I agree with that, definitely. So I think that if you help people avoid problems um, – you you actually help their chances of recovering and recovering more quickly. That's right, because if someone's uh, infected with both HCV and HIV, they've got a lot on their plate, um, you know, besides the their drug use. And, um, you know, if we can keep people healthy, as healthy as they can be while they're using, that those are just huge obstacles that they don't have to deal with once they decide to recover. Um. Okay, um, more questions, and I don't want to delve into too many details, but uh, uh, is it difficult to, uh, for, the, for your exchange program, is it difficult for you guys to get the clean needles to distribute? No, we get some, uh, some help from some national uh, organizations um, to help us uh, supply needles. Uh, so, um, so we have difficulty in finding funding and help on the regional or state level, but nationally we we do get a lot of support. And we also get a lot of support locally, so a lot of HIV agencies will help us um, on the local level to provide us with uh, smoke kits or bleach kits so and stuff like that. Um, so we, we do get some help on the, on the national level. And, of course, what funding we do get, we can you know dedicate that. But all of our funders know what we do, so um, so we we don't feel like there's any problem with us spending any funds that we get on buying needles if we need to do so. Are bleach kits legal? They are legal. So in Texas, it's 
exchanges themselves aren't, you know, there's no law that says thou shalt not do exchange. There's just no laws on the books that ex- that exempt uh, needle exchanges from drug paraphernalia laws. So uh, bleach kits uh, and even smoke kits, stuff like that, uh, there's they aren't considered paraphernalia, and so they can be distributed um, as much as we we like. It's just the needles themselves that we aren't able to legally exchange. Do you find it's easy or difficult to get volunteers to work in this? It's been very easy. Um, I, many times we have a lot more volunteers than we have spots for them. So the, the word gets out. People... Uh, I think people understand non-decision makers in the government kind of understand the situation and um, despite the the risk of getting arrested doing this I I think that even uh, for some people that may even be more of a draw because they feel like they're actively resisting an unjust law that causes people to die and so I think they're and I, I would include myself in, in that group that, you know, if there's a, a law that results in people's deaths, that you have an ethical responsibility to resist the law. Um, and I think that some of our volunteers kind of fall into that, and I know I do too. That's one of the reasons why I started getting involved. So what issues or what points do you personally think it's most important to focus on currently? Well, with our organization right now, we've been having some um, some issues with funding. Um, we lost a couple of funders who decided not to fund exchanges anymore, um, and we just have a really difficult time to try to find any funding uh, since we can't get government support. And like I said, a lot of the regional foundations won't touch us with a 10-foot pole. Um, and it's impossible you know, for us to do the work unless we have the funds available to to buy the supplies that we need and um, get out in the street and do the exchanges. So uh, right now, that's what I would say. Well, funding is a major issue, especially in this economic climate. Um, the exchange that I worked in in Minneapolis has had to uh, close their storefront and they are no longer in existence. I know most of the people that work in that organization are still working in needle exchange because it's legal in Minnesota, and there are other venues that you can distribute needles from, but we no longer in uh, the state of Minnesota have a specific needle exchange that people can go to specifically for that purpose. So the economic climate is a, is a very difficult one for many people in yeah. many areas. Yeah. Yeah, and then this last year we lost a, a grant and we got amazing support from the community. I think we ended up raising um, a total of probably $15,000 or so just from small donations, um, which in order to ask people for those donations, we've had to be a little bit more overground than what we're really used to being because we had to kind of make it clear to people why it's important for them to give. But um, but it's been pretty amazing considering the, the economic climate and how much support we've gotten from the community. Well, that's a really good thing to hear about. What other issues come to your mind as being at the forefront? Um, of course, you know, the whole risk of um, 
a rest for people who who volunteer with us and our clients. Um, we um, you don't get a lot of no one's ever been arrested, and the exchange has been around for I guess 18 years now. There's there's never been an arrest, so we've we've been pretty lucky in some regard, and I think the um, the law enforcement in our area also is understanding of what we're trying to do, and so um, we've been pretty lucky. But um, but that's always a concern because you know we. I wouldn't be surprised if there were people out there who would use our services if they thought they could use the services without the risk of being arrested, you know, right after they step off of our vehicle that we use for for the exchange. Um, and also just the fact that we can't advertise. We've got word of mouth. Uh, we've got schedules that we can give out to people because we go from place to place. We don't have a storefront. Um, so we have certain times during certain days where we're going to be at certain locations and we can't really advertise it, you know, in any big way because, you know, we don't want the authorities to know exactly where we're going to be. So, so that's probably the, another big issue is just, you know, we probably aren't reaching the people that we could or should because we've got to be careful about, about who we tell and how out we are. Mm-hmm. So, do you have both friends and enemies in law in law enforcement? Well, I've heard stories that um, sometimes a cop will see us, figure out what we're doing, and will um, hang out as a kind of a form of harassment, I guess. Um, and um, they'll hang out for a while, so you know we'll we'll go to the site. We see them there, and it's a person that we've seen for a while, and then we leave immediately. And then after a while, they kind of go away. And so our thought has always been that, well, maybe this is a rookie. You know, he or she's thinking, I'm going to do this big bust and make the papers and, you know, all this stuff. And then the more uh, experienced officers will talk to them and say, you know, these guys are cool. You need to leave them alone. They're doing a good service for the community. Um so that's um so I think that we do have enemies every once in a while, but I think that that um other people kind of step in and ask them to back off mhm, yeah, it's a difficult issue because it's illegal. I know in places where the exchange is legal very often the exchanges you know they go right to the police and talk to them, and you know they do make friends and they they have good relations with the police. Yeah, and I think if uh, if it were legal in my area, we probably would have a wonderful relationship as well. And it seems like we don't have a bad relationship. I, um, not too long ago, maybe three or four months ago, some uh, police actually came to the exchange because they were looking for someone who was apparently one of our clients. And they were told what we did, and they saw everything, um, and, um, and then they... They left, and we had a conversation with with the two of them, and um, you know, they went away and didn't come back, and so you know, it was it was cool. So I think I think if the legal situation were different, we would probably have a very um, good working relationship with the police. Because I'm, you know, like I say, just the fact that we it's not legal, but we still don't have the kind of problems that we could have. I think it's an indication that we have at least tacit support 
Um, and if it were ever legalized, I think, you know, the police would probably come to us and say, well, you know, there's this new shooting gallery of you know, that kind of stuff. But, um, but right now, you know, we can't really actively formulate any kind of relationship with them. Are you engaged in efforts to uh, educate uh, professionals, doctors, lawmakers, uh, people in the law enforcement? Uh, do, do you work on that aspect? Uh, we can't. So we did ask a local politician to sign a letter for us to um, get a grant. And as soon as we mentioned the work that we did, we never heard back from this person's office mainly because of the legal aspect. So um, that was really sticking our neck out uh, to contact a local official. Um, and, you know, we just, it's its taking a really big risk. Uh, this particular official lost a family member to HIV, so we thought that this might be a natural um, relationship we could have, and it didn't work out. So, um, you know, We've got to be careful about who we talk to because all it takes is the wrong person, and then we're out of business. Mm-hmm. Do you try to provide them with uh, written materials about the value of clean needles? Um, we don't directly. I would say that um, I think I think most of the HIV agencies in the area understand this, and so if any new um information comes out that you know we'll share that with them um even though we we also have a presence online we don't we aren't open about what we do because we are actually a legal 501c3 organization um but we don't uh online say that we do syringe exchange so we kind of have two different faces we have our underground phase where face where we do the exchanges, and uh, some people we tell what we do. And then we have kind of our public face, and that public face, um, as far as people know, we don't do exchanges, um, but we're an education organization. So, um, so for the general public, we do a lot of education. Uh, we just have to be careful about you know who might see it. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to be closing uh, the show shortly, so. What, what would you like to say in conclusion? Well, I would like to say that, you know, injection drug users are human beings like we've been talking about. They're beautiful. They've got ugly parts just like all the rest of us. And just like all the rest of us, they have a right to live. They have a right to live healthy. Um, and, um, you know, I get, like you were saying earlier, if someone thinks that injection drug users are monsters, they should find an exchange or some other program where they actually meet some, and they'll find out very quickly that you know these people, you know, are wonderful people, and they should be um, treated just like you would treat any other human being. Okay, I want to thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Mr. Anonymous. Thank you. And everybody, uh, next Wednesday, we will be doing a special show with uh, Dr. David Rudy, who will be talking about his book, Becoming Alcoholic. And on Thursday, we will be back doing our regular show. And our first guest will be uh, Bart Major from St. Anne's Corner of Harm Reduction in the Bronx. And our second guest will be Candy Leitner, 
who will be talking about the breathalyzer ignition interlock system. So I hope to see you all then, and thank you, everyone, and good night. Good night. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.